0: Love Talk Radio. Measuring truth Talk radio (laughs) Yeah Now those other stations out there They always got something to say But uh Not this station right here We don't just got something to say, y'all We got the truth
1: Growing up as the only child of professional parents in a Richmond, Virginia suburb, Kimba Smith led an advantage and sheltered childhood. After graduating from high school in 1989, Kimba left the security of her family to continue her education at prestigious Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. What happened to Kimba in her new campus environment is every parent's nightmare. Away from the protective watch of her mother and father in an attempt to fit in, Kemba fell in with the wrong crowd and became involved with a drug dealer. He was a major figure in a $4 million crack cocaine ring and drew Kemba right into the middle of his life with physical, mental, and emotional abuse disguised as love. Eventually, after enduring this turbulent four-year relationship in 1994... Ms. Smith was sentenced to 24 and a half years and served six and a half years in federal prison. She also gave birth to her first and only son while incarcerated. Fortunately, Kimba regained her freedom after President Clinton granted her clemency in December of 2000. Her case drew support from across the nation and the world. In the crusade to reverse a disturbing trend in the rise of lengthy sentences for first-time, non-violent drug offenders, Kimba's traumatic real-life experiences forces today's students to recognize that there are consequences to their life choices. As a wife, mother, advocate, consultant, and public speaker, Kimba has received numerous awards and recognitions for her courage and determination to educate the public about devastating consequences of current drug policies. Ultimately, kimbus knows that there is a lesson in each experience in life, and she has embraced her experience, learned from it, and is now using that experience to teach others. There are so many stories of what could happen when a young lady goes away to college, and then there are stories of what actually did happen. Both can be a learning experience, but only one holds a measure of truth. Kimba Smith, welcome to A Measure of Truth. Hello, Kimba, are you there?
2: Yes, I am.
1: How are you? Okay, yeah, I saw you drop off the switchboard for a second, and I thought we had lost you for good. Well, welcome to A Measure of Truth.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Well, thank you for joining us. I know that you, you know, you're in some difficulty. You're a busy lady and you're you're actually on the road trying your best to um <laughs> to make it all work, and we appreciate your efforts. And <laughs> hopefully you heard a little bit of the intro, but you have such an amazing story because as I spoke about, you know, we often hear about, you know, all the things that can happen, all the warnings that parents give their children before going away to college, trying to prepare them for the worst. Um, tell us a little bit about what your mindset was when you actually left for college before these things actually took place in your life.
2: Um, my, my mindset was, you know, that I wanted to um be a pediatrician, that I was gonna focus in on a biology major and um, you know, meeting new people. I was very excited about um leaving home and having my newfound independence, um, because basically I was my parents' only child and you know, they were very protective of me and, um, you know, didn't allow me much uh, flexibility while I was in high school. Um, And so I was very excited about, um, you know, going off to college and having some independence. But when I got there, I basically, um, you know, observed other people and compared myself to other people that ultimately had me dealing with some self-esteem issues. Um, I didn't understand the fact that God made me as an individual, and I didn't have to be like everyone else and um ultimately, I didn't sit back and observe um first you know who I should associate myself with and become friends with and um I was more so concerned about wanting to fit in and being a part of the um the cool crowd on campus
1: right right so I
2: somewhat, yep. so I somewhat lost um lost my focus within the um first Few months of college life.
1: Now, when when things started to go a little, you know, off the beaten trail for you, when when things started, you know, when you were making choices that you knew that were wrong, what was the thing that led you in that direction anyway? What what, what was the motivation there?
0: Um, I think
2: you know, in, in my story, you know, even though it is very dramatic and it goes into you know, getting with a drug dealer and um, that whole um lifestyle. Uh, any kid that goes to any college, whether it's the H B C U or, you know, North Carolina State or what have you, um, there are certain um dynamics of college life that, you know, you will find um people that are dibbling and dabbling and whether it be drugs or um some type of illegal activities, it could be something not as dramatic, dramatic as drug lifestyle, but, you know, alcohol and drinking. Um, So, basically, you're exposed to these things. And so, ultimately, that newfound independence um, had me interested in certain things and wanting to try new things. I see. And, um, basically, um, it wasn't a strong desire initially, but, again, that's why I was saying, you know, it's very important for um, young people to pick and choose who they want to associate themselves with because, ultimately, I was, you know, in circles where... Um, you know, people were doing different things. My roommate at the time um, at college, my freshman year, she dated a drug dealer.
0: So mm. I would see
2: her come in and out of the dorm room with, you know, new coach bag, new tennis shoes. And, you know, her um, guy, uh, you know, drove a nice car. And, you know, I just kind of looked at it from the outside and wondered, you know, what it was like. And it seemed fun from the outside.
1: Right, right. Now, um, did you also, because you you come from a very – very good background and your your parents did a good job of raising you did did what you see actually make you think that you had less when you actually had more
0: um
2: i guess the materialistic nature because i wasn't really caught up in some of the you know name brand clothing or what kind of car a person drives so When I did go into this new atmosphere, I kind of compared myself um, to other people. But it wasn't as far as, you know, what my parents provided for me or as far as what I didn't have. It was more so just the personal style. And that's where I'm saying those low self-esteem somewhat Mm -hmm. kicked in. Um, But I wasn't looking at it as far as, you know, what my parents didn't provide or what I didn't have. I still was grateful at the opportunity that, you know, I was able to go to one of the most prestigious, you know, universities in the country, Hampton. Um, So I I knew that, you know, I was, my parents provided the best and that I was at a good university. But when I got into that setting, I started feeling insecure about myself
3: and Mm. the way
2: that I looked and the way that I dressed and just. You know, that there were girls from California, L, um, New York, New Jersey, D.C., Baltimore, and I just would compare myself with them. And, you know, in um, response to your previous question, I would see, you know, girls going out with the guy that with the drug dealer that I eventually got into this relationship with. I would see him come on campus and pick them up and go out with them and see him come on campus and hang out with different students and guys. And so I just, you know, again, was curious and wondered, you know, who this guy was and why was everyone gravitating towards him. And um,
1: Did you and know at that time that he was a drug dealer?
2: At... Excuse me, say the question again.
1: Did you know at that time that he was a drug dealer when you were still curious and sort of enamored by that lifestyle? Yes.
2: Um, I had heard that's what he did. Um, and I knew that, like I said before, I knew that there were other upperclassmen girls who were dealt with AKAs on the dean's list doing very well, that I would see him come on campus and pick them up and knew that, you know, they were dating him or going out with him. So, so um, we were pretty much um, naive and not making good, you know, decisions or choices um, because ultimately, you know, in our mindset back then, we thought that whatever he did was his business, and we're in school. Mm. So that was the way that we justified it or tried to make it seem like it was no big deal. But it was definitely a big deal.
1: So tell us a little bit. So how did you meet him, and how did he draw you in?
2: Um, I met him over a friend's house, a friend that I grew up with in Richmond, Virginia. We went to the same high school. And um, ultimately, you know, um, he was uh, Peter... Um, what's his name, Uh, he was Jamaican, and he came by over to my friend's house, and that's that's how we met, and um, ultimately, you know, we started talking soon thereafter, after we met, and pretty much just, um, you know, started uh, our relationship.
1: Now, it it had to be at a certain point where you realized that you've gotten yourself in pretty deep, and, and did you... Have a point where you became afraid and you understood that, hey, look, wow, I'm sort of taking a chance here. You know, I I could – things could go wrong at any moment. Were you ever there? And if so, what, what did you use to diminish that in your own mind?
2: Um well, like I said, um, it's very important as far as who you associate yourself with, and I think there were several individuals who were in my circle who thought that it was cool or, mm. you know, a good thing that I was with this um, particular individual, and ultimately it became a point where, um, when the abuse started, where, mm. you know, I knew that I was in over my head and, hmm. um, but I wanted to believe that he would change and that, um, you know, things would, would get better. And then, you know, things escalated just to fast forward where he killed his best friend because he thought his best friend was cooperating with the authorities. So wow. at that point, the, the, the love that I thought I had for him or what I knew love to be at the time, which I had no clue. Um, but led more so to me being um afraid of him.
1: And
2: um, I wanna get to protect back to myself this and protect my family.
1: Right. Now when when you first started dating this guy, and, and let's get right to the point right before this abuse started, and we want to talk about that too. You were still in contact with your parents, right? Yes. Now You had to know that you were hiding this lifestyle from them, and you had to feel that, you know, at at least at that point, that you were in a situation that your parents wouldn't approve of. Right. So tell me, what did you think about that in in that instance, when you were actually on the phone with your mom? Did you feel guilt, or did you just feel relieved to get off the phone afterwards and not having exposed yourself?
2: You mean whenever I spoke to my parents? Yeah. Um.
4: Yeah, there was a certain sense of
2: guilt. There was also this, um, I guess, false sense of, you know, everything will work itself through where mm-hmm. I had hoped that um, by me staying in a relationship with Peter that eventually he would change because he would have conversations with me telling me how – He didn't like selling drugs and that he planned on doing something that was, you know, more productive and legal, and I had this fantasy in my head that, you know, eventually maybe things would turn around and he would stop selling drugs and, you know, we'd go off into this fairy tale and everything would be fine. Um, And, you know, I'm grateful at the fact that I was able to get out of my situation and now I'm able to share my story with other young ladies because Mm -hmm. the fact remains that, you know, it's still going on today where there are young girls that are into, you know, these guys with money, illegal money, you know, not living their lives right and just thinking that, you know, eventually things will work out. And unfortunately, you know, in my situation, I only got deeper and things got worse and,
3: you know, mm-hmm. it's only
2: by the grace of God that, you know, I was able to get out of it and not by anything of my own. I mean, I had my parents that were out there advocating for me and God that made basically, you know, made a miracle happen so that the president of the United States would, you know, open mm-hmm. those doors for me because there are several other tempas, um, same exact scenario stories where, right. you know, they're still in federal prison today.
1: Right. Now... Um, right after we get to this first incidence of abuse, I want to talk about actually where your mind was at the day when this all fell apart for you. But the, the, it all started for you. It was an eye-opener when this abuse occurred. Tell us a little bit about that situation. How was it initiated?
2: Um, well, it's a long, complicated story. I'm going to try to make it we got plenty now. of time.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, well, initially... We were at a Greek picnic in Philadelphia, and um, ultimately uh, he had um, met me at this um, celebrity basketball game outside, and um, he saw me walking with a guy, and the guy had kind of grabbed my hand when we were walking across the street. And there's a long scenario that goes along with that, but ultimately later when I saw him um, that evening he questioned me about who this guy was and basically me and another girlfriend had met this guy and he was walking with us to help find our other college friends that were there. But ultimately Peter said that that same guy was sent into um, that celebrity game to bring out two girls and to take them to a hotel and there were going to be some guys there that were going to force sex on the two young ladies. And so he said for him to look up and see me and my Girlfriend, um, and he eventually, you know, got angry as he was telling me what would have happened, and he started hitting me and beating me and telling me he was going to show me what was going to happen. And so mm-hmm. that was the first time he ever put his hands on me, and I actually thought that, you know, my parents were going to be reading about me the next morning in the Philadelphia newspaper. You know, college student dead and found dead in a hotel room. And initially, I had in my mind, you know, as soon as I can get away from you know, this crazy man that I'm never going to see him again. But um, when it happened, I was in shock. I basically didn't want to move, didn't want to say anything that would make him angry all over again. Um, And I eventually ran, um, went over to um, my college friend's house because I had to get some of my things that were there. And Peter took me there. And, um, again, this goes... You know, there were a couple of my girlfriends that thought abuse was just a part of relationships because they had gone through that. And Mm -hmm. so when I walked in, no one, you know, as I was gathering my things, said, you know, um, Kemba, what happened? Something looks wrong with you. You don't have to, you know, go with him. You can come back with us, tell him to go ahead. And ultimately I ended up leaving and going back to Virginia with him and, you know, started playing mind games with myself because, you know, I was worried about going on campus and letting people see me physically, looking like that, you know, I had just been abused, and I started listening to him telling me that, you know, he was sorry that it wouldn't happen again and how he didn't want me to be afraid of him,
1: and ultimately,
2: um, you know, the thought that I had initially of, you know, I'm going to leave and get away from him, I stopped listening to my voice and started listening more to him.
1: Wow. Wow. So at that point, (laughs)
0: yeah,
1: yeah. But, you know, at that point, you really didn't have many choices. And in a situation like that, now that you can look back and think about it, what would have been your options? What do you think you could have done that could have maybe helped you at that point? Um, go to the authorities? Um, is there counseling? or Are there groups? Is there a way right. that a young person that can actually find themselves that deep? Because it happened very quickly. Then right. what do you do?
2: In that type of situation, um, you know, I would say, you know, maybe, I don't, to be honest, I mean, in my mind I'm thinking maybe... You know, when we walked out of the hotel, me just, you know, going over to the front desk and, you know, telling the front desk people that I need some help or security in the hotel or, you know, to have something maybe that might have been less confrontational, you know, when I went over to my girlfriend's house, you know, just told them, you know, I need your help. I don't want to go back with him and to have called the authorities then. Um, But, I mean, there was a sense in my head, you know, where I, you know, thought that, you know, my best option was just to go with him and to believe him, that, you know, he didn't want me to be afraid of him because he didn't, you know, he wasn't physically with me before. Now, you know, oftentimes I talk about certain signs that, you know, one should look out for, um, and I do remember a particular incident where um, he did, you know, raise a red flag for me, but um, Mm -hmm. he didn't put his hands on me. He didn't yell at me or anything like that. He just told me that he didn't ever want me to jump for another man again when I had gotten up to open the door. Um, So, uh, Hmm. you know, those are a couple of options, but, you know, I do think, you know, me, that I would have been able to get away if I really, you know, would have put more of an effort to, to leave. Um, when that first incident happened. And I know, you know, again, like you had mentioned earlier, had I been open and honest with my parents, they would have done everything that they could have possibly done um, to protect me. Um, My concern at the time, though, was, well, later into our relationship, was the fact that, um, you know, he felt as if my parents were, the reason why the federal government was coming after him more so because they wanted their little girl back. So I was really concerned at the fact that he had been to my parents home and I didn't want any confrontation to um to mom dad, you know, with him, so and I knew that he could be violent.
1: Absolutely. So you were actually fearing for your parents' lives, so there was a situation where you, you could have, but then you would have thought that you would have actually put them in jeopardy in the process as well.
2: Right.
1: Wow. That, that is just amazing. Now, he's the drug dealer. How did you get yeah. arrested? How did that happen? What um, What was actually, your involvement at that time?
2: Yeah, I wasn't arrested. There was a period of time where I was with him. Um, he was on the run from um, the authorities and during that period of time I was indicted by the federal government and um, I actually um, did come back home and at the time I was um, seven months pregnant and I had been with him for a period of time and I came back home and um, I had an attorney and I had the attorney um, contact the prosecutor and let them know that um, I wanted to turn myself in and My attorney at the time was friends with the prosecutor, so they had supposedly made a deal where um, the prosecutor would let me be in agreement with me coming home on bond so that I could give birth to my son. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: basically I turned myself in to the authorities, and the prosecutor reneged on his promise and read a statement, a statute from out of a law book, and the judge um, held me um, when I turned myself in. And then um, also, too, the prosecutor said that if I pled um, guilty um, to my charges that I would only receive 24 months in federal prison, prison, and he reneged on that promise as well. So I ended up giving birth to my son while incarcerated, where five minutes after I gave birth to one of the U.S. Marshals, um shackled Hank up my um, leg to the bed and said that my parents couldn't be in the room. And um had wow. I had two officers guarding me um while I was there and I was only there for um two days but after I gave birth mm. to my son I didn't know when I was gonna hold smell, feel, touch my son again because mm-hmm. of the way the county jail was set up. You weren't um allowed any physical contact but I was sentenced um I was sentenced four months four months after I gave birth to my son. Mm. And then eventually um, I was transferred to federal prison after I was sentenced to 294 months in
1: prison. Mm. And Mm.
2: basically with the way the drug laws were set up... um, But,
1: but Kimba, what were you charged with? I don't understand.
2: I I pled guilty to um, conspiracy to distribute crack cocaine. At Mm. the time, um, I pled guilty to conspiracy to distribute crack cocaine, false statements, and money laundering. And at the time when I signed the guilty plea, there was no drug weight attached to it. And I can remember telling my attorney, um, you know, I just don't feel right about this. You know, I told him I was scared, and pretty much he told me, you know, I'm scared too, Kimba. So that did not make me feel good at all. Um, But um, basically that drug conspiracy charge is the charge that carries the most um, time and weight. And because... There was no drug weight attached to it initially. Later, they put that I was held accountable for 255 keys of crack cocaine. And basically, with drug um, conspiracy sentencing, you get sentenced to X amount of time based upon the amount of drugs that are in the conspiracy.
1: Not actual drugs, but drugs that are in the conspiracy. Wow.
2: Yes. Because the prosecutor said, I never handled, used, or sold any of the drugs that were involved. You don't actually have to be out on the street corner selling the drugs. So that's, you know, also a main um, point that I try to drive home to our young people, especially, you know, in our urban communities, you know, So because, you know, they get um, delusioned by, you know, the fast money, the cars and everything, and especially the young, you know, the girls and it's very easy for you to, you know, um, get caught up in that and and you think you're not doing anything, but sometimes just your association can get you caught in the middle of it.
1: So he he's still out. He's still out and about, or did they have a case on him as well?
2: Um, you asked me if he's still out and about now.
1: No, no. Um, oh, oh. Uh, we'll get to that eventually, though. But at that okay. time, he was still free, correct?
2: He was still um, free, but it was only... I turned myself in on September 1st, 94, and he was found murdered in Seattle, Washington, hmm. in October 1st, on October 1st, 94. Wow. So, yeah.
1: Hmm. so really they had no one else to pin it on so they chose you
2: um that's when the tables turned and um actually too with um my story um i actually did um break down um and i called my attorney because i knew where he was last i knew where we were you know both staying together last and um i called my attorney and i was crying and telling him you know that i was scared but you know, that I would tell, you know, the authorities where he was. And basically um, my attorney came, I gave him the address, and when um, he went out to call the prosecutor, they took me back to the population at the jail, and then they called me back into uh, an attorney panel room, and my attorney told me then that they had found him murdered um, in Seattle, Washington. So basically I um, waited too late to cooperate and
1: that's when it's taken time. I see. I see. So um by then he was already dead so there was they really it was no bargaining chip there is what you're saying. No. Wow. Now here you are this um naive privileged young lady and now you're in federal prison. H- how did you Maintain your Air. sanity. <laughs> yeah.
2: Air. Um. Initially, because from county jail they take you to this holding facility in Oklahoma City, and I remember an older woman coming up to me. Um, basically, we you know we sat down and we started talking, and she had already been to a couple of federal prisons, and you know basically she just wanted to give me a heads up. You know, she said, you know, I was a young pretty girl, and I didn't look like I should be in prison, and she was just telling me, you know, I needed to be really careful because, you know, there are girls that, you know, would try to get you to do things different that you would, you know, normally not be into, and soon thereafter with that conversation with the lady, I got on that phone, called Collect, called my dad, and was boohoo crying, you know, but... Um, you know, you hear me in my presentations and, you know, whenever I talk about my ordeal, you know, God kept me Um mm. that ordeal. I'm always going to give, you know, God his credit and um, honor because uh, he protected me. I mean, I really didn't. Um, I was scared, yes, initially, but eventually um, after uh, some time in the system, I realized that, you know, a lot of the women were just like me. Mm-hmm. Um and um, you know he protected me um through that experience, and so, um, my parents and I both gained a lot as far as um education and the fact that you know this wasn't something that just happened to poor little me that you know there were hundreds and thousands of other women who were going through similar- situations, and I believe that's you know the main reason why so many. Um, People and organizations, Emerge Magazine, um, you know, highlighted my case and took on the cause. Um, And I know um, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, um, they ended up um, coming on board after I had a couple of attorneys and after my parents had exhausted their savings and retirement.
3: Mm. And I'm
2: grateful that they came on board. And Elaine Jones, who was director at the time, said that she was going to stick by me until – we saw justice. And it wasn't about poor little Kimba again. It was about the fastest foreign population within prison or black women. And so she mm-hmm. wanted my case to set a precedent for some of the other people that were incarcerated under similar circumstances.
1: Hmm. That's an amazing story. And I really have to commend your parents because the way you tell it, it seems to me that they never gave up on you. They never bought into this new image of what their daughter maybe had become based on her associations.
2: Yeah, I my parents are my heroes, and even still today, you know, they they support me and have my back one hundred and ten percent. And, um, you know, I I feel indebted to them for life. But you know, they say that they're so, um, you know, proud of me and everything that you know. There's no need for me to feel like I need to do anything just for me to keep you know living my life, but. You know, they did um, make some sacrifices where I realized that some parents may not have gone to that extent, but I'm very grateful for them.
1: Wow, wow. And um and it's amazing too um just being able to um continue your education and be able to refocus and to, to really pull yourself together. It seems to me that you've taken all of this in stride, learned a, a very powerful lesson from it and made everything in your life that went wrong work for you. You know, is that something that you learned uh in, in these um bitter circumstances that you had to to endure?
2: I think I I learned it Um, But, you know, I must admit, you know, I didn't do it by myself. Again, you know, Mm -hmm. God and I have a strong family. Um, I had a a son that I gave birth to that was a huge inspiration, you know, influence on me where, you know, I couldn't lose hope. I had to Mm -hmm. always believe that I would eventually come home and not. Look at the piece of paper that said my release date was 2016, and how I yes. would come home and leave with a grown man. So, for wow. God to open those doors and for me to, you know, get back out there and be able to raise him from six and a half, even though I had lost a lot of time, um, for me to have come out of that situation, and then even looking back and knowing those individuals that I left behind, it only seemed, you know, right for me not to you know, close that door and not continue to speak out for those that I left behind and then still try to have balance within my own life and be the best mom, best daughter, best wife, you know, that I could
0: possibly be.
1: You know, and um the work that you're doing as well and helping to educate others and to, to fight against these um long sentences that are unjust. Um, tell us a little bit about that and what it stems from as well. We know your story, but how is this being implemented in the community and how what is its impact?
2: Well, it's it's been a long journey. I was released in December um two thousand and I can remember um sitting at the table, you know, after my first You know, a few months of being out And sitting at the table with some of the people That helped To get me released And us talking about You know, how the laws need to be changed And what we can do on the grassroots level And organizing and lobbying And I started To get frustrated at the fact that You know, change is slow um, Especially when you're You know, dealing with um, Issues such as these Where, you know, it's, it's political where, you know, congressional members don't want to be perceived as being soft on crime and you know, but there have been so many um media, news, uh, broadcast publications that have had highlighted this issue of mandatory minimum drug sentencing and first time nonviolent offenders where, you know, the President of the United States, Bill Clinton, released a handful of us and I had no comprehension as to why no one else could benefit from it, even though they knew that there were much more. So, in my opinion, change wasn't happening fast enough. Mm
3: -hmm. And it
2: was very frustrating initially, but, you know, I realized that me speaking out and continue being a human face for the issue and going up on the Hill and, you know, talking to congressional members and their aides and, you know, um, speaking before hearings, um, that that was making a difference and I was, you know, trying to help with changing Um, the laws, um, and, you know, basically, um, it wasn't up until, there have been some small incremental, um, changes, um, but the, the biggest victory was last year with the Fair Sentencing Act that President Obama signed, Congress signed, and President Obama signed and went into effect that reduced the 100 to 1, um, crack cocaine disparity to 18 to 1. And my case Mm. was the crack cocaine case, um, and so that um, was a significant um, victory, um, it, even though, um, in my opinion, it should be one-to-one. But, you know, you have to be grateful for what you can get in, in this political climate.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, let's just talk briefly about the, the healing process, too, of coming out of this and um and um I also want you I mean I have to I have to really I mean there, there's a special man in your life um Mr. Padilla. and um I mean when when someone comes into your life and they understand where you come from how, how does that person help you to heal tell us the impact he had on your life
0: Um
2: he's had uh a huge impact um we met in 2006, and um, initially he didn't know anything about me. And mm-hmm. um, I then, um, and previously, you know, prison, basically, um, my crime was falling in love with the wrong guy and making poor decisions. Prison didn't teach me about a health relationship or, you know, those issues that I had um that led me into getting into that situation. And so I had trust issues and everything yes. coming out. And mm-hmm. but I also was strong-willed enough to know that I wasn't going to be that female, that woman that constantly gets into these, you know, abusive relationships and you know just making poor choices. I did learn from that situation. But um I did have trust issues in, in meeting my husband and Basically, you know, he knew my ordeal and my experience, and he understood why I would have trust issues. And so, basically, you know, he was just patient and understanding mm-hmm. with me. Um, and I, uh, you know, I don't know how much he would be in agreement with me telling, but you know, he if I if I did have some insecurities, he would sit down and talk to me and, you know, explain certain things. And I had dated guys previously, but um, he just presented himself to be. You know a really upstanding guy and open and honest with me uh, about certain things so um you know I tell in my presentations to young women, you know it's unfortunate that you know it took me to age thirty four thirty five to know what a health relationship you know consisted of, but um, you know it was all about to i believe his upbringing and you know, his parents, you know, are still together, and, you know, what he saw in the household, and, you know, I'm grateful that they embraced me as well, so um, he is a a very um, special guy, and also, too, you know, not only dealing with me and my past, but anybody, a guy entering a relationship where a woman has a close-to-teenage son, (laughs) that can be difficult (laughs) as well, and I have stories for days about that, but... I'm grateful that, um you know he was patient with my son and um and everything worked out, and that my parents liked him as well.
1: oh, that's awesome, that is awesome. And, and that's an amazing story in itself. Maybe at, at some other point, maybe we can get you to come back and talk a little bit more about um, just right choices and relationships, but there's so much in your story. I want to talk a little bit about your foundation as well and um, how people can can participate and in, in the efforts that you are making and um, where they can hear you speak. So tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, the foundation was um, created while I was incarcerated, and basically um, my parents had started this um, speaking tour with um, youth and trying to prevent them from getting caught up in the same type of situation. And ultimately, um, it's been doing the same thing, but um, we carried in a component that um, dealt with mentoring children that has an incarcerated parent. And then I collaborated with an organization, National Alliance of Faith and Justice, with a program called What's Love Got to Do With It, and um, there are links on my foundation page uh, about those programs, but um, I'm also gearing up to try to do something focused around um, my book and a curriculum and workbook to go along with that, but ultimately it's still, you know, trying to guide our youth and also, um, you know, dealing with women and relationships and young girls and making healthy choices as it relates to that and, you know, making sure that, you know, our young people, um, have their dreams and goals become a reality and to learn from, you know, other people's pitfalls. So, cause I don't believe a young person has to make each and every mistake there is to make in life that they can learn from other people's stories. And, you know, oftentimes we as an adult, we don't want to expose those things. Some of the time we want to make it seem like, you know, we've had, you know, things all together, you know, mm-hmm. ever since it came out the womb, but, um, <laughs> I do think, you know, when you're, you know, real and open with our young people as far as some of our own personal experience, that they ha- do have a tendency to open up more to talk about issues that they're dealing with today.
1: Oh, that's great. You know, and um, we want to just bring on someone else who's very familiar with your story as well, and um, they've had an opportunity to um, hear about it and understand, um the story and its impact on other people who've heard that. Uh, Dr. Patard, are you there? I'm here. Well, Dr. Patard, introduce yourself and um, tell us a little bit about what your take is on this story.
4: Sure. Well, first of all, Kimba, thank you so much for being so transparent about your journey. I think it takes a lot of courage and um, tenacity to really live the, you know, the, the sort of Journey that God has intended for you, and for you to be making such meaning on other people's lives. So
3: thank
0: I just you, want to thank you God. so much. Thank I you. I actually,
4: very much. I I feel like I've known you. <laughs> I um I went to Hampton and I blogged about you today actually because it took me right back to orientation. And oh wow, you know just I, I know you remember when we came to Hampton there was orientation and um yeah. Yeah, because of your journey, um, that was a huge part of how we were, quote, unquote, oriented into Hampton. So we we talked a lot about you and we had heard your story, and it was part, like, mysterious, like, oh, my gosh, this is really happening. But as you talk about, this is such a reality. This is such an issue. And um, I know when I was at Hampton and my tenure was 98 through 02, there was definitely a lot of drug activity in the Tidewater area and there was definitely a lot of connection to that part of um, the the state to our campus. And, you know, just in listening to you now and having had the opportunity to have gone, you know, continue my education and be rethinking and reflecting upon those events, what you're saying is so powerful, especially because at the time that that happened to you, you were a young adult. So when we're talking about that time frame, we're so impressionable as people.
1: And what I find
4: fascinating about your story is, yes, you came from a a privileged background. Um, I actually know someone who went to your high school who um, knows you from church. So there's so many different sort of areas of connectivity. But the reality is that story is so prevalent, unfortunately. And it makes me think a lot, though, about prevention, Um, and not just in terms of the type of relationship that you were in, but also in a lot of the effects that were caused by it to you. For example, domestic violence. I mean, we hear so much of our young children who are struggling in domestic um, or or in violent relationships so early. And that really stands out to me. Like that's something that I don't think that we talk enough about. And as you talk about, you were really trying to fit in. You were really finding yourself. You know, you wanted to be a part of a larger community. So really the implication and the impetus then comes back on us adults and really how, especially as administrators and educators, Mm -hmm. we're being really honest about these issues. Like, how are we having those types of conversations and that kind of dialogue? Just as I left the University of Virginia, we um, experienced a, a, a serious tragedy on our campus, but similarly it was a domestic violence situation. I mean, of course, different circumstances, but it just affirms that what our youth are struggling with during that time period is so complex and so intense. And I wonder from your perspective... What do you think i mean we've heard you and share so much, and I really appreciate that what What do you think would have really helped or would, would there have been any conversation or would there have been some sort of mediation that would have made you think different, or do you think that that was something that was discussed in your life
0: um,
2: well, when I you know reflect back so long, long, long ago <laughs> um with Starting out at Hampton and, um, you know, I started during pre-college, which was during the summer. And I do think maybe something that could have made a difference um, is if more emphasis would have been put in freshman orientation and just getting students, you know, acclimated to um, the reality of the fact that they are going to be defining themselves and finding out more about who they are and to discuss, you know, some of the insecurities. Um, And I know, you know, they had big sister, big brother programs. Um, I don't even remember if it was official, um, but I know that we were assigned like uh, big sister. And it was kind of surface stuff back then, and I'm, you know, it may be different today, but... You know, maybe if there could be you know group sessions with the freshmen, just to kind of get your mind right about you know what you're what you're in store for. And like I said, you know during my freshman orientation, the main thing you know I remember was being discussed was just uh, you know not walking on campus by yourself. You know,
3: um, mm-hmm.
2: it really I don't remember it you know really being in any any type of in depth conversation about issues that, you know, you can actually encounter. Um, So I think giving students um, heads up about it and, you know, maybe even having, you know, because, you know, people go before, you know, boards at colleges where, you know, they have, uh, you know, their uh, academic career, you know, could possibly be jeopardized because of some you know, activity or something they've been involved in, even if, you know, some of those people can come back and talk about their experience and what happened, so there could be some real-life discussion, open conversation about, you know, what happens on college campus so, you know, kids Mm -hmm. could be better prepared. I don't know if that, you know, makes Mm -hmm. sense, but I think the Mm -hmm. freshman orientation is is probably key that might have made more of a difference for me because I don't I don't even remember if we had a full-blown, like, freshman orientation class and curriculum back then. And if we did, there might have been, like, African-American history, you know, like required curriculum reading or something. But it wasn't, you know, as you're sharing, you know, how they talked about my story. You know, it wasn't anything like that when I was there. So I'm glad that Hampton was, you know, doing that as far as sharing about what had happened to me.
4: It did, and I, and I will be honest, I mean, as you're trying to remember, I am too. I'm, I feel like my age has gotten the best of me here. I do remember that <laughs> the conversation wasn't maybe as real as it could have been. I mean, I, I think it was more of a, like a scared straight kind of tactic. Right, don't let this happen to you. <laughs>
3: right.
4: Um, and I also wanted to ask you, Kemba, about your friends, because I think that as Michael was talking about that healing process, obviously you've had a lot of reflection on this entire you know all these life happening, and when you were talking about the picnic and um, you know your interaction with your friends, can you talk a little bit about how that? Did they know, or was there right was there opportunity for intervention? Did it not happen? Right. So I'd right.
2: have, I think, in that. I think it's real important for women, and especially in the college scene, uh, and not just in the college scene, with everyday life, older, younger, doesn't matter. You know, making sure you have a good circle of girlfriends. Now, I don't want to make it seem like, you know, my girlfriends were terrible friends. I mean, we were just all kind of lost. Um, But um, I know two of my girlfriends, you know, back then, they had dated drug dealers, you know, when they were in high school um, and also had been in abusive situations. So um, they had more experience in it that was something you know that I had never been around I went to you know you know what high school suburban high schools um I had never you know been around that kind of lifestyle but um no none of my circle of girlfriends actually sat me down and said tempo you know what are you doing you know but mm-hmm. There was one friend of mine. We went to the same elementary, middle, high school. We're still very close today. She knows me probably better than a lot of people. And um, basically, she didn't say anything to me, but she distanced herself because, mm. in, you know, she told me back then that she knew me and she knew what type of heart I had and, you know, how, in quote hard, you know, I love a person and so she knew that there was she didn't think that there was anything at that time that she would have been able to say to me so she just kind of backed out of the situation without saying anything at all to me but you know she was actually um you know matron of honor in my wedding and you know we've had some reflective conversations about um that time period but the other friends that i had um at that period of time were not in um you know, direct, constant communication with each other. Obviously, Facebook is, you know, the thing of the times and, you know, the best way to kind of keep in contact to see, you know, how old friends are doing. So we may send each other, you know, a message from time to time. But um, there's only one girl from out of my circle of friends who actually was involved with, Um, Peter, and also has a child by him, and she was also in the witness protection program. Um, Mm. He's the only person that I have not seen um, or, you know, been in contact with since I've been um, home out of prison.
1: Wow, Wow. Kimba. Now, are 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 there other of the girls? Remember, you said you admired these other girls who were going out with these kind of guys. Um, Did you ever see signs of them after, especially after your abuse? Did Did you ever then think to yourself, "Wow, I remember seeing so and so. It looked like maybe she had been beat up." Or did you ever recall anything that maybe was a sign that was missed that you didn't know until after you had put yourself in the same situation and had experienced something that. Was you know as as shocking yeah. as the abuse?
2: I think that was the problem that the people that the girls that I did see that were in the relationship with the drug dealer, you only saw the or what was perceived to be you know the positive side. You didn't really you know know the negative, and that's one of the things that you know. You know, I regret because I don't know what girl could have looked at me, you know, driving on campus and, you know, one of Peter's cars or Peter dropping me off on campus and thinking, ooh, you know, thinking that, you know, that's a cool situation when in all actuality, you know, it wasn't. It was the worst situation I could have been in, and that wasn't the reason why my parents sent me to Hampton. So, um, You know, I didn't see any of the negative from some of the girls that I knew that had gone out with or been with a drug dealer. Hmm.
1: So uh, tell us a little bit, too. Now, you're incarcerated, and you know that things are going your way finally. You're getting the attention, and there's a possibility of you being released and uh, that Clinton was going to give you this opportunity. Tell me what you were thinking then before you were actually released. Where was your mind then, and what was your plan for life?
2: Um, well, while I was in, I did everything I could possibly do to keep myself busy um, from uh because they had prison ministries and prison um, church programs where I sung in the choir, I did um, praise dance, I was in Christian play, Um, I taught a black history class. Um, There were, you know, I taught women Microsoft Office um, to help women that were on pre-release status. So um, it was just really important for me to kind of stay connected and at the same time praying and hoping that eventually those prison doors were open and for me to keep my mind active and constantly, you know, learning things so that um, it was in my mind that when I came out that I wanted to be able to share with young people um, my ordeal and what happened. Um, And so basically um, when I knew that we had submitted the clemency petition, um, I was really – unsure if it was going to happen, but I knew at the same time if it didn't happen, that things didn't look good for me um, because I had already exhausted um, every remedy there was in the court system, and here we were having a president go out out of office, and Bush was about to come into office, Mm -hmm. and I just knew that in my mind, you know, nothing was going to happen with a Republican in office, so... um, I was very doubtful, and my son had faith of you know a mountain, and basically <laughs> you know he would say things to me like you know mommy you know Jesus is going to bring you home, and um, because wow. my parents were out there fighting for me, advocating mm-hmm. for me, you know mm-hmm. I would see my dad on CNN speaking on panels in the TV room in prison. I would hear Maxine Waters, Congresswoman mm-hmm. Maxine Waters, speak about me at the William Wom- Million Woman March, so. You know, I I never really lost hope, and so um, basically um, I just held on, you know, to that hope, and when I did finally um, get word, um, I was happy and, um, you know, so happy that I was going to eventually, you know, be able to raise my son and go home to my parents and not put my parents, subject them to any more pain and heartache, but at the same time, I was feeling guilty and felt bad for the women that I was leaving behind um, because, you mm-hmm. know, they were, there were women standing around me watching me pack up my things and
3: mm-hmm. I knew
2: that their stories were identical to mine and, you know, I just felt really bad, you know, um, the fact that, you know, I had this opportunity and they did. And so, um, I think that's one of the main reasons why, you know, once I was able to walk out, um, you know, I thank God for what he had done, but I could not just forget and not continue to speak out for those that um, I left behind.
1: Yeah, and um, we've just got a few minutes left. I want to make sure people understand um, where to get your book, Poster Child. Tell them a little bit about that as well.
2: Yes, um, well, it's taken me a while to finally have my story in print, but I'm so grateful that um, it is done and completed. You can go to um, my website, which is com, and order your copy of Post Child, the Kimba Smith Story. And today, with what I'm sharing with your audience, it's only a fraction of what's in my book, and I'm very mm-hmm. candid and real about Um, What happened Um, And To this day my mom She's probably like Kimba why Are you putting all this my mom has not Mm -hmm. Read the whole book but Mm -hmm. um, She understands that There are people that will learn From it and that it's going to Save lives so you know Mm -hmm. I just continue to pray that um, God allows my story To do what it needs to do because eventually I won't be able to tell it anymore Kids will not listen to me anymore I'm just mm-hmm. fortunate the fact that you know God has blessed me to put me in a position where kids you know want to listen. Um, but eventually, I hope the story tells will tell itself. Well,
1: thank you, thank you, Kimba, and I appreciate you coming on to to tell your story. And uh, we look forward to talking with you again in the near future. And um, special thanks to Dr. Petard as well for calling in and putting in your yeah. input as well. We really appreciate thank you, Dr. that.
2: Pittard. And thank you, Michael. I really appreciate you for having me on your show and helping me get
1: the word out. Well, thank you. A special thanks also to our producer, Donna Hardman. And before you go, here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts. They become words.